Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. State of Wisconsin once again breaks its daily coronavirus case record. Let's go now to Kenosha, Wisconsin, because the county sheriff says more than 200 arrests have been made during protests that followed the police shooting of Jacob Blake. This election should have been called off. You know, they're telling us to stay in the house and, you know, stand six feet from each other. But then one of the most important times they're forcing us to come out here in a group. Stop playing politics with our lives. You know, that's what I'm feeling. In the United States, we're currently dealing with three overlapping pandemics, COVID-19, racism, and political apathy. Our people and our systems are sick and our citizens feel, and in some cases are, disenfranchised, unable to do anything about it. That's a challenge when the fate of the country lies in the hands of people voting, not to mention the fact that voting itself looks different, perhaps more complicated than ever before. Welcome back to Women Belong in the House. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan. Today we're talking about how these challenges combine in a place that many said decided the 2016 presidential election and may have an outsized impact again this November. For the next stop on our road trip, welcome to Wisconsin. Wisconsin has 10 electoral votes and a population of about 5.8 million people. So why are we, and why are the presidential candidates, spending significant time on a state that, by the numbers, looks sort of small potatoes? Here's Grace Lynch, one of our lead producers here on Women Belong in the House and host of Wonder Media Network's new show, Winning Wisconsin. Over the past year, I've been working to understand what happened in Wisconsin, how a state that was so reliably blue went red in 2016. And what I found is that when you think about the overarching narratives in American politics, the rural-urban divide, racial inequality, income inequality, the loss of manufacturing, the loss of unions, the rise of right-wing media, it's all really heightened in Wisconsin. Our candidate today has seen all of that firsthand. She's been in elected office serving the Milwaukee area in different capacities since 1989. You may know her from her memorable welcome to this year's Democratic National Convention. Hi, I'm Gwen Moore, and it's my honor to represent Milwaukee in Congress and to kick off the 2020 Democratic Convention. But Representative Gwen Moore did not always want to be a politician. In fact, she said she sort of got dragged into the business. I was a person drag kicking and screaming into elected office. I loved public service, but getting elected and being out front was something different. I always liked to work in the background, and I was very good in the background. Gwen was born in Racine, Wisconsin in 1951. She was the eighth of nine children born to her parents. Her father was a factory worker and her mother a public school teacher. Gwen was raised in Milwaukee. She was president of her high school student council, but had no desire to continue leading out front as an adult. 
She attended Marquette University, where she studied political science, all while doing the work required of a single mother. Despite the fact that she didn't see herself leading as an elected official, Gwen's work was always political. After graduation, she started a community credit union and she worked at a women's reproductive health center. We first started providing abortions after Roe v. Wade. Very, very political job to be able to do that. So I remember at one point in the state Senate, there were no women at all, women uh, Democrats. So I heard that this woman, Barbara Ulichini, was going to run for the Senate. So sight unseen, I showed up at her campaign headquarters, licking stamps and, and so on. Uh, and then, uh, and she won. And then I found out, and then I went to church one Sunday, and this woman, Polly Williams, came, the pastor's daughter came, you know, so that next day I was out doing doors for her. And, you know, so my mom was said to me, well, my God, you're supporting all these candidates. Why don't you run? I mean, you'd be great as a state representative. And I was like, no, I would never, ever, ever do that. I mean, I wrote speeches for politicians for my once congressman, Jerry Kletchka. I, I worked at the Department of Employment Relations for the state where I wrote ghost letters for the Secretary of Health and Human Services. And that was just fine. I had a boss at the city of Milwaukee. Uh, I wrote all his speeches. I enjoyed being in the background. And my mother says, no, you ought to be a state representative. I would love for you to be a state rep. And I was like, no. And uh, I was telling her, go sit, in that, go sit in that rocking chair over there and leave me alone. Well, anyway, she died October uh, 1986. And then in January 1988, I had this dream that I was standing at some podium talking and Dismas Becker was standing right next to me. Gwen told her daughter about her dream, writing it off. Among other reasons, Gwen didn't want to run against the incumbent, Dismas Becker, the man who appeared alongside her in the dream, because she thought he was doing a good job. But a few months later, Becker came to Gwen to ask her to run he had decided to step down in order to run for the state Senate. After a lot of hand-wringing, Gwen decided to run. In season one, we learned women are way more likely to need to be asked, and asked multiple times, before they feel like they should run for office. The most classic way for people to end up in Congress is to run for local office and then keep climbing the political ladder. That's the path Gwen took. She went from being a state representative to a state senator before deciding to run for the House of Representatives in 2004. Even with all of her experience serving constituents, Gwen was warned that it was going to be a difficult race. Really? Is it, is it harder than raising three kids by yourself? It couldn't be. If it's not harder than that, I've already done the hardest thing that there is to do. Uh, it couldn't be harder than that, you know. And uh, it was 20 hours a day, every day. Uh, and it was a three-way primary, and it was rough. You know, I campaigned on, on healthcare. I, I campaigned, and that was the other thing too. People said, well, Gwen, if you give up your seat, you're gonna lose your healthcare, you're gonna lose, do you have a second job lined up? Said, All of these people that I'm proposing to represent, they've already lost some of that. You know, it's, 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 why not put myself at risk? And I'll tell you, one of the things that really inspired me 
is that when I was in the state legislature, Wisconsin under Tommy Thompson was the first state to end welfare as we know it. And I was up debating four, five o'clock in the morning against welfare. I had 100 amendments to try to change uh, our welfare. And it was the first state in the nation to end welfare as we know it. It became the model for Bill Clinton's welfare reform. And I cried, snot running down my nose, tears. And I vowed that day to do something about it if I could. And this was my chance to do it running for Congress. Gwen Moore won the election. Since she first got to the House in 2005, she's taken action on the issues she and her constituents most care about, first on the Financial Services Committee and then on the Ways and Means Committee. She worked on Dodd-Frank and was the ranking member of the Subcommittee on International Policy Monitoring. She fought for abortion rights and against the Defense Against Marriage Act. All the while, her district has continued to face serious economic and social challenges. That brings us to the first of the three pandemics we're discussing today, racism. Here's Grace again. Racial inequality is really stark in Milwaukee, even compared to other U.S. cities. There was a report out of the University of Wisconsin-Madison by Mark Levine that showed that the black poverty rate in the city is five times higher than the white poverty rate. The median income for black residents in Milwaukee is 42% lower than the white residents of the city. Black people are incarcerated at a rate 10 times higher than white people. And the ACLU identified Milwaukee as the most segregated city in the country. For Representative Gwen Moore, the energy and widespread support of the Black Lives Matter movement has helped to push forward legislation that she's been pushing for a long time with little progress. I truly appreciate the legislative process, you know, so you just take something like the Justice and Policing Act that we put together. I'm so proud of that bill. And it's something that wasn't thrown together overnight. It was something that as experienced as Black people experiencing violence against police, we think about it all the time. As a mother of two Black male children, I was like, how vain of you, Gwen, to give birth to two Black male children in America. Two! What the hell were you thinking? This America! Two! And so I put a piece in there that wasn't getting any traction for about six years, you know, de- mandatory de-escalation training. And then George Floyd, and all of a sudden, you know, I've got a piece in this that probably is, is, you know, one of the most bipartisan pieces. But that's how it works. And so it's just a piece of it, you know. And so it, it, it's not going to have the Gwen Moore Justice and Policing Act, but that's okay. Gwen has experienced prejudice and racism throughout her life. She was inspired to put the Justice and Policing Act together after the murder of Dontre Hamilton in Milwaukee in 2014. It, it was based on the trauma that I still experience from Dontre Hamilton being killed by the police. I never hear his name uttered when they started listing the names, Mike Brown and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And, you know, but he is like one of the most innocent. He wasn't trying to steal Lucy's. He, he wasn't doing anything. He was asleep. He literally was asleep on a public park bench downtown. The problem was it was in in front of a Starbucks across from City Hall and across from the Performing Arts Center and around the corner from, you know, from the, uh, you know, MGIC and, you know, all of the big 
law firms and restaurants and, and stuff downtown. And there he was sleeping on a public park bench in front of Starbucks. So the two little white girls inside, like, oh, the cold place. There's a black man sleeping on a park bench. You know, come quickly. And of course, the police showed up. Two cops showed up, went out there and, and you know, engaged Dontre Hamilton and then went back into the Starbucks and said to the two women, well, you know, he's just hanging out and he's waiting on his brother to pick him up. And, you know, uh, he's, you know, we did a wellness check. He's okay. He's not bothering anybody and blah, blah, blah. Well, unsatisfied, these women picked up their cell phone and they called the cop they knew and had his cell phone number. So this cop shows up you know, with his nightstick and he pokes and prods at Dontre and, and, and starts a confrontation with him. Dontre Hamilton, I got his autopsy. He's about five foot nine, weighed, I weigh more, about 140 pounds. He, he grabbed the, the, the baton. And, uh, you know, so if he grabbed that baton, that the police officer said, well, you know, he now has my weapon. So I'm shooting him 14 times. Dr. Hamilton was, uh, was mentally challenged. He was somebody, you know, so he's somebody that, you know, there's a lot of conversation about defunding the police, you know, about how, you know, some other agency besides that cop would have been. I mean, the first two cops were models. They recognized that. I mean, he was no threat to anyone. He was asleep on a public park bench. Oh, he's looking homeless. And you know, we somebody might not come buy a cup of coffee if they see this homeless person there, whatever. But that haunted me. Like I said, he wasn't even asleep while he was in Wendy's driveway, obstructing traffic. He wasn't bothering anybody. And he died, 14 bullets, unarmed. Other news tonight, some unrest in Milwaukee. Dozens of protesters there took to the streets today. What are they angry about? Well, they're angry about a decision not to charge a city police officer for a deadly shooting. 31-year-old Dontre Hamilton was shot and killed by now former Milwaukee police officer Christopher Manny. The decision not to charge the now former officer came from the county's top prosecutor. Now, the Milwaukee County prosecutor says based on evidence, Manny's use of force was justified. But Hamilton's family was disappointed and angry. Much like the rest of America, Wisconsin has a long way to go when it comes to addressing systemic racism. The state made headlines when protests erupted after Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back by police about 40 miles outside of Milwaukee in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Two protesters were subsequently killed by a 17-year-old vigilante who now faces multiple homicide charges. As protesters took to the streets, the rampant inequality in the state was underlined by disproportionate health and economic impacts of COVID. Well, you know, clearly Milwaukee, Wisconsin was one of the places where they recognized that there was a disparate impact of African-Americans contracting COVID-19. And I mean, maybe not contracting it, but dying, succumbing uh, to it. It was a, one of the first recognitions that this was the case. And so it really harkened back to what we've always known, uh, the, just, the, 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 just the critical mass of inequities in healthcare. Uh, you know, we're one place that didn't take the Medicaid expansion. 
certainly you're only eligible for uh, Medicaid if you were at 100% of the poverty level, which is nothing, uh, which made a lot of people ineligible that would have been had we taken the expansion. Milwaukee's economy was already struggling before coronavirus hit. When you combine that pandemic with the, uh, the pre-pandemic, Milwaukee was already suffering. It was a place where, you know, because of the loss of our manufacturing base to technology, not just overseas, but to te technology and, and deindustrialization, um, you know, um, uh, uh, and in the shenanigans, of course, from the president, too, with regard to his trade policies, well, we lost just 700 jobs, you know, with Harley Davidson, uh, our farmers, we saw, I don't represent a farm community, but, it, I, you know, Milwaukee is surrounded by farmland. We see increases in suicides among farmers um, and uh, loss of, of epic record losses of family farms. And so we're concerned about apathy, uh, about hopelessness, about people giving up. Uh, I am very worried as we see these evictions come down the pike. You remember reading uh, Matthew Desmond uh, of Harvard's book about eviction. One of the places in the country where there's the greatest disconnect between market uh, prices for rent and people's ability to afford it. I I'm very, very concerned because pre-pandemic, we had a community at risk. And so I am very, very anxious about getting us a, a package together, our HEROES package we put together uh, and introduced in, in May. Uh, it was not perfect, but I do think that it really addressed a lot of things that will be helpful to our citizens. In addition to fears about broader general apathy, Representative Moore also talked about her fears of how apathy could affect results this November. We'll talk about that and more after the break. I want to tell you about an awesome platform called Bonfire that we've been using at Wonder Media Network. Bonfire.com is the easiest way to design, sell, and order premium shirts, all virtually and risk-free, with no out-of-pocket costs. On Bonfire.com, you can upload a design or use their templates to promote a fundraiser to your community. They'll take care of printing and shipping the finished product to your buyers. I worked with the Bonfire team to create a Women Belong in the House t-shirt for all of you to campaign in and rock this election season. I've been living in mine ever since. Plus, their fundraising features let you accept additional donations on top of shirt sales. If you're a political campaign, Bonfire is compliant with all campaign finance laws and can give you additional insight into your supporters, making fundraising nice and hassle-free. Bonfire's trusted by the Women's March, California Women's List, Rock the Vote, and now Wonder Media Network. Check out the Women Belong in the House shirt we designed at wondermedianetwork.com bonfire and support our network in creating podcasts that amplify underrepresented voices. Tag me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan in any pictures of you rocking your Women Belong in the House t-shirt and sign up for their awesome platform to use your own platform for good at wondermedianetwork.com slash bonfire. For so many of us who've been working from home, it's really important to stay healthy, focused, and energized. If you're looking for an easy way to make that happen, check out fresh, delicious meals that can be delivered straight to your door from Saqqara. 
Sakara is a nutrition company that believes wellness begins with what you eat. From hearty salads and nutrient-dense granolas to savory flatbreads and seasonal fruit parfaits, Sakara's ever-changing menu of creative, chef-crafted meals makes clean eating delicious. In addition to their delicious meals, Sakara offers daily essentials like supplements and herbal teas to boost your wellness routine and support overall health and vitality. To boost immunity, try their best-selling daily probiotic blend or detox water drops with pure chlorophyll. Right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their order when they go to sakara.com slash house or enter code house at checkout. That's sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A, dot com slash house to get 20% off your order. Sakara.com slash house. Check it out. On top of everything that's happening in Wisconsin and across the country, it's an election year. Those of us who are able to vote here have an opportunity to do so between now and November 3rd. But with rampant voter suppression and widespread apathy, the questions of whether and how people will vote very much still stand. Here's Professor Wendy Schiller from Brown University. She's the Royce Family Professor of Teaching Excellence in Political Science, a professor of international public affairs, and chair of the Department of Political Science. I think the, the, the heavy reliance on mail-in uh, balloting, which you expect to, to, to exist across the country for the election, is actually a disadvantage for the Democrats. And why it's a disadvantage is that momentum is really important. So when you think about momentum and you think about the practice and civic kind of um, uh, habit forming of going to the polls together as part of that energy and momentum, you want to say, hey, get to the polls. I'm going to call you. Let's vote as a group or, you know, in terms of solidarity. That's really going to be missing this year. So it's going to be up to the individual to fill out that ballot, make sure that if it needs to be notarized or witnessed, which is something that people argue is voter suppression because it makes it harder to vote. Those things are harder to do and get mobilized to do and get motivated to do on your own. It's much easier to say, hey, did you vote? I'm going to go vote now. Would you like a ride? So I think that Democrats should be pushing, although it's hard to do, for some in-person voting across the board because they're more likely to capitalize on that momentum and energy from their on-the-ground social movements than the Republicans, and they need it more to win. Representative Gwen Moore talked about the challenges she's facing in her district with reaching out to voters. Well, thank you for asking. I mean, this is really a difficult topic because, you know, in-person contact, in-person contact is the best contact of all. And so I think what, uh, under the leadership of the Wisconsin Legislative Black Caucus and the Milwaukee Caucus, I'm working, Legislative Caucus, I'm working with them to see if we can't come up with some innovative uh, things. I've even learned how to kind of do Facebook myself. And, you know, maybe we can have some Facebook live events where we invite people to come to various parking lots where we can get businesses to cooperate with us, to pick up yard signs you know, to have us witness their absentee ballot if they want, really go. We know exactly where these wards are, where there was a huge underperformance. We know exactly where these people live. And so hopefully we're able to do passive contacts with people, leafleting, for example, saying, hey, want you to know that you have a lot of uh, options for voting. Uh, Here's an address. Uh, And you can just use your smartphone to apply for an absentee ballot. If you're already registered, they've sent you one and the envelope looks like this and show them a picture of what the envelope looks like. And then uh, really continuously check and see how many 
absentee ballots have been returned from given wards and continue to go back to those areas and say, we've noticed that, uh, that uh, you may have received an absentee ballot and you didn't vote. Uh, we want you to know that there's still plenty of time to get it in the mail. Um, if not, uh, we have good luck. The early voting places have opened up and it just so happens that the early voting place is two blocks from where you are. You know, is is right here at this school, uh, so you can turn them in safely and not have to worry about standing. So we're going to be very aggressive and engage people, all masked up, and you know, providing yard signs out of the trunk of our cars and 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 Facebooking people and and Instagramming them and getting on the radio and uh and then like i said physically being present in some blocks i can even see myself with a bullhorn asking people on 15th street to come outside and talk to us another big hurdle for voters in the badger state is recent voter id laws here's grace again so in 2016 wisconsin put in place new voter id laws so voters had to produce identification at the polls that matched this acceptable list like driver's licenses or passports, but there was all of these caveats. So something like a student ID only worked if it wasn't expired and if you had additional proof of concurrent enrollment, which obviously provides a bunch of extra steps and might not work for someone who's a recent graduate but doesn't have any other form of identification. There are a lot of different estimates out there over how many people this affected, One estimate was that roughly 300,000 eligible voters in Wisconsin didn't have the proper identification leading up to the 2016 election that they now needed. It's hard to know how many of those people were ultimately deterred from voting. A lot of people mistakenly didn't vote thinking they didn't have the right ID. Some people were turned away at the polls. Some people, I'm sure, were able to get their identification in order, but it did add this extra hurdle that was brand new in 2016. And the University of Wisconsin-Madison did a survey after the fact with Dane and Milwaukee County voters to capture their experience with these new laws. And of their respondents, 27 percent who were deterred from voting were African-American, when only 8 percent of white respondents were deterred from voting. And we've seen across the country that voter ID laws disproportionately affect black and brown Americans. And that looks like that's also the case here in Wisconsin. These laws are still on the books for 2020. And in the era of covid When voters are trying to request absentee ballots, they actually have to upload a photo of their photo ID in order to receive their mail-in ballot, which, again, is just another hurdle and another additional barrier to voting. In 2016, 61.4% of the citizen voting age population reported voting, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. About 71% of people who are 69 years or older voted, while about 46% of people between the ages of 18 and 29 did the same. In other words, voting is not a habit for all Americans. And if it's already not a habit, and it's going to be more difficult to do this year, then it's possible many people won't make that extra effort. Here's Wendy Schiller again. The the elements of this election that I'm going to look at from now until November is voting rules, uh, mail-in ballots, early voting, how ballots are counted, who collects them, certification across, I think, about 15 really important states. And I really want to know that. That's my homework going forward, because that will determine the election. And that will determine when we know who the winner is. And paying attention, are they going to have in-person balloting and mail-in balloting? 
uh, are they going to send people uh, an automatic application for the ballot or do people have to reach out to get the ballot? Are they going to require witnesses and notification, notarization, like I mentioned earlier? Rhode Island just waived that requirement. So now people can just simply send back their ballot. You know, Ohio is starting early balloting quite early now. And the mistake I think that supporters of the Hillary Clinton campaign made in 2016 was assumed that early ba balloting was good for Hillary Clinton. A lot of people said, oh, look, 200, 300,000 ballots have been returned. You know, early voting must be good for Hillary Clinton. But it wasn't. It didn't turn out to be good for Hillary Clinton. So that's the other puzzle is who is more inclined to vote early? Is it the Trump supporters who really want to make sure their vote is counted? You can imagine that since Trump has instilled some mistrust in, in mail by ballot, people will get out the door for Trump to make sure their ballot gets in. Whereas Democrats may not be as facile or, or you know, may not be as um, adept at, early, at voting. So the organization's capacity to make sure that in every state the rules are followed and people actually get those ballots back, that is going to be the thing I think that wins this election at this point. And I am watching that like you know a hawk and I am, I am totally agnostic as to which party uh, is better at it. I suspect the Republicans are actually better at it. And I think the Democrats are going to have to play some catch up. Get out the vote efforts this year are also more complicated than normal. Here's Debbie Walsh, director of the Center for American Women in Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers University. How you do get out the vote is like a whole other way that most people don't really, most candidates don't. I mean, if you're running in Washington state, you know how to do that because you've been doing it forever, right? But if you're in New Jersey, this is like a whole new world. And there's also an enormous amount of voter education that's involved. I mean, I consider myself a pretty sophisticated voter. I was a bit confused by my ballot because we had vote by mail and it's, you fill out this piece and you have to sign this, but you don't sign there. And then you put it in one envelope and then you sign that and then you put it in another envelope, but you do sign that. I mean. It was, it was a bit complicated. And in fact, here at the institution that I work at, the Eagleton Institute of Politics, there's a whole effort to make sure that young people are voting, college students are voting. And they did a TikTok video. And I actually had to go on, I had to figure out TikTok. I had to go on and watch this video because I honestly was confused. So if I'm getting confused, I can imagine first time voters, or people who, older people who, you know, they're used to going somewhere and they pull the lever and they don't even feel like they're voting unless they're doing, pulling the lever or now we have to push a button, but whatever it is, you, you're going somewhere. So this is a real, this is a real challenge, I think, for all, all candidates. And I think trying to teach about how to vote at the same time that you're trying to get people to do it as well as convince them that you are the candidate. It's a tall order. It's a lot. It's a lot. If you're feeling apathetic yourself, wondering whether your vote or any individual's vote even matters, now feels like a good time to remind you that in 2016, the presidential election was decided in Wisconsin by less than 23,000 votes. Total votes for the Green Party came in at around 30,000. Here's Grace again. If you go back to 2016, both parties grossly underperformed. African-American turnout in Milwaukee dropped by 19 points compared to levels in 2012. Trump won by his largest margins in counties where under 1,000 people turned out to vote. And he still received fewer votes overall than when Romney lost the state in 2012. Here's Gwen Moore again. 
I mean, I think that the real urgency is really engaging people about their power. You know, 2019, the, the electorate quietly shifted uh, from the boomers, baby boomers, and people in, that, in the greatest generation having all the voting power to, you know, Gen Xers and Zers and millennials are now being technically the majority of the voters. I always, you know, my chief of staff, I have to remind him I'm a boomer because he just cannot stand boomers. He blames boomers for everything that's gone wrong in the world. And I have to say, excuse me, I, I signed your paycheck and I'm a boomer. But that being said, you know, we've got to let them know all this stuff that you say you want now, justice and policing, you know, uh, common sense gun regulation, um, uh, uh, universal health care, uh, uh, leaning into climate, climate action, all the stuff you say that you want. Guess who has the power to secure that? You do. The power is in your hand. You don't get to beat up on the boomers. I'm so reluctant. I think I've never used the term that this is the most important election in your lifetime because it just gets to be people, you know, people think that it's just an idiomatic expression. But I, 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 I want to tell people that uh, the rest of your life is tied up into what happens, you know, whether or not you, I told a young woman at the, at the drugstore the other day who said she wasn't going to vote. I said, well, your ability to have an abortion or not will be determined by what happens in this election. She kind of perked up. Whether or not you'll have safe schools, whether if, everything you can think of. I said, you know, when you're born, an elected official signs your birth certificate. When you die, an elected official signs your birth certificate. Everything between that dash, you know, how much your vehicle registration fee is, the whether or not you can have an abortion is determined by somebody that you elect or not elect. And so I just wanted to, to leave that with, with young people. We are in the home stretch. The election is happening. In some states, early voting's already open. If you're planning to vote by mail, it's essential that you check out local resources to understand how to do so properly so that your vote is counted. Make a detailed voting plan so that you know exactly how, where, and when you're going to cast your ballot. I've said it before on this show, and I know the phrase can get a little stale, but this election may actually be the most important election of our lives. I'm hoping that this look at Wisconsin, at a state where so few votes decided the fate of the country four years ago, might help inspire people to step up and take action. Women across the country, again, have stepped up at record numbers to actually do the work of running for office. Now it's your turn to step up and choose who gets to serve you in the governing bodies where decisions are being made. For more on the state of Wisconsin, WMN has a brand new show hosted by Grace called Winning Wisconsin. The trailer and episode one are now out wherever you listen. Episodes drop on the Winning Wisconsin feed on Tuesdays. And starting next week, we will also drop episodes of Winning Wisconsin on this feed every Thursday. Tune in next week for the next stop on our road trip. We're continuing our move west, but this time driving south too. We'll be talking about the great state of Arizona. Women Belong in the House is a Wonder Media Network production. It's executive produced by me, Jenny Kaplan, and produced by Grace Lynch and Liz Smith. 
Special thanks to Louisa Garbowit and Edie Allard for their work on the show. Original theme music by Miles Moran. Talk to you next week.